0: Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your ons of skull related factoids. My name is Jordan Runtug. Nope.
2: <laughs> well, I am, at least. <laughs> I'm, not give, I'm not giving you that one. Uh and I'm Alex heigl Damn it. <laughs> and today we are
0: talking about no doubt's tragic kingdom or as I prefer to think of it, the 90s answer to Fleetwood Mac's rumors. I make the comparison not only for its glut of ubiquitous radio hits including just "Girl," "Spiderwebs," and of course "Don't Speak," but also <sighs> the drama. Good God, the drama. You have interband romances imploding, jealousy, teenage tragedy, family squabbles, and ska lots of ska there's drama and ska there's skama (laughs) oh no (laughs) we are 90 seconds in and i got two two massive groans out of you this is going to be great um and to top it all off all of this is going down literally in the shadow of disney's magic kingdom from which the record takes its name this is so great the story behind tragic kingdom is truly crazy and the feelings of loss, longing, and anger are apparent in so many of the tracks. No doubt bassist Tony Canal, who we will talk about quite a bit in this episode, is quoted as saying that Tragic Kingdom was, quote, the outcome of three years of struggle, and there were casualties. Specifically, his relationship with Gwen Stefani, one of the most iconic front women of the 90s, inspiring artists like Lady Gaga and Paramore's Haley Williams, but the band also played a role, although some would argue a small one, in the brief third wave ska craze of the 90s. I have to admit, I knew none of the dramatic behind the music bait backstory to this album when it came out in 1995. But uh, what about you, Heigel? What was your experience with Tragic Kingdom? Were you cowed by its inescapability or charmed by the energy and charisma of Gwen Stefani?
2: I'm going to let you in a little secret about me, Jordan. <laughs> I hate ska. I hate it so much. I don't even hate it in a way of like, oh, it's it's like, I like, like people were like, I listen to all kinds of music except country. I hate ska. I hate people who are into ska. I hate ska culture. I hate, I hate ska. I hate it so much.
0: Well, well, let me, let me put it to you. It's going to kill
2: me one of these days. It's going to kill me one of these days. I, I,
0: let me let me. I hate ska. Let me try putting it to you this way. Do you actually <laughs> classify No Doubts music on this record as ska? I mean, this is more pop,
2: almost. Great question. Pop-punk. Great question. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I haven't dug into there. Why would? Because why would I do that? But um, didn't they like have like? Weren't they like closer to actual ska like before this? And then this was their record where like some big like a Robert Mutlang. Guy got his mitts into them and was like, "You gotta smooth off some of those edges to make it big." Yeah, the guy
0: who sang "Nothing's Gonna Break My Stride" in the '80s was called in to work with them, which we'll touch there on later. So, yeah, that's some of it. What do you hate about ska exactly?
2: You know, it's the it's that quote from the <laughs> You do Buff- the Amer- You do the
0: almost famous thing to start with everything. everything.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, no, the you know it, it's the it's marching band kid energy grafted on. Onto- pick it up! Pick it up! Pick it up! Yeah, grafted onto the most surface level interest and exploration of Caribbean culture. Yeah, It's like Mm, that thing about that Jimmy Buffett quote, like, crafting a vision of the Caribbean that had no people of color in it. (laughs) Like, And, you know, I'm not trying to short sell Gwen Stefani as like a 90s figurehead, but I, the fact that someone, (laughs) I saw a tweet, I can't take credit for this, that said people are shocked at the thing that she's like dating that that big potato or married to him now but someone Wait, was Sheldon, like yeah. yeah but they were like um starting out as like a 90s punk adjacent female lead singer and winding up married to a conservative guy named blake is the most orange county shit ever um <laughs> you know i have to give her credit for you know they did like oh you know what song i actually really like is underneath it all oh yeah and they do have like a i think they have a jamaican dance hall artist on that one right I lady saw think you're right yes yeah. So all right, whatever. They took they took steps to fix that. Even though she did have that whole phase where she was like, Look at the Japanese women I have you I'm using as an appendage to my career. They will not speak and I will have them with me at all times
0: i'll tack the nice thing you said about them (laughs) onto the end of this episode to give it a nice narrative arc people seem to like that with the jimmy buffett thing there was a change there all all good drama has a
2: change so the hero's
0: journey yes
2: also i saw this behind the music like this was like the behind the music that came on second only to like poison and bon jovi growing up and that's why like without any exposure to their music you mean yeah, yeah, and that's why just, like, passively sitting in front of the TV as a kid, I absorbed more about, like, this damn story. But I don't think I heard it that much growing up. I mean, I like spiderwebs a lot. It's on goes. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> well, you're about to know the
0: story even more, Heigl. And everyone listening, you will as well. I gotta say, this whole story of No Doubt makes Fleetwood Mac's rumors look like a simple misunderstanding. We'll talk about the breakups, the beefs and even the Bindies at the heart of No Doubt's breakthrough record. At the end of the day, it's really a story about a female powerhouse coming into her own as an artist. You'll hear about Gwen Stefani's phone stalker, the mystery of the missing dress from the album cover, the band's weird but deep connection with The Simpsons, and how a stomach bug inspired a standout album cut. Plus, we'll do a bit on Walt Disney's cryogenically frozen head,
2: so you don't want to miss that. Isn't that like the fifth time of this head's appearance on the podcast? (laughs) But we've never dug into it. Until this episode, friend of the pod, Walt Disney's Frozen Head.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So without further ado, here is everything you never knew about Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt. (music) The story of Tragic Kingdom begins in the home of Disney's Magic Kingdom, Anaheim, California. Specifically, it begins in the Stefani household with siblings Eric and Gwen. They were raised by folky parents who worshipped Bob Dylan and Emmylou Harris, and they even played in a band that gigged at L.A.'s legendary Troubadour Club. And these people sound like adorable boomers. Gwen's middle name, Renee, was taken from the Four Tops cover of Walk Away Renee by the Left Bank. Isn't that sweet? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And while we're on the topic of Gwen's ancestry, there's a persistent rumor that she's related to Madonna, which is understandable given their vague physical resemblance and their pop diva status. But it's not true. Gwen herself has debunked those claims. According to her, the story took root when her aunt married someone with the last name of Chacon, which is Madonna's seldom used last name.
2: So, didn't, uh, not didn't Madonna have a bindi at one point too?
0: Oh, probably in the same time. Yeah, around like Beautiful Stranger era. Oy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we'll get into the
0: bindis later. That's, that,
2: that's oh a, good. Yeah, that's a section here. <laughs> Hashtag. We'll get into the bindis later. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we haven't done, done the unnecessary hashtag lately, so please tweet at us at hashtag, we'll get into the Bindies later. <laughs> but enough about Gwen for now, let's talk about her big brother, Eric Stefani, who does not get enough press despite the fact that he really is the one responsible for the formation of No Doubt or to blame, in your case. (laughs) By all accounts, he's an extremely creative, talented guy with a passion not just for music, but also drawing, as we'll find out later. Reading about him reminded me of those stories about the Beach Boys' early days when Brian Wilson would basically force his younger brothers around the piano to sing harmonies with him. Eric Stefani more or less did the same thing with his little sister Gwen. Speaking to Interview Magazine in 1996, Gwen recalled, Eric was the really talented and overly hyper older brother who was always pounding on the piano, and I was the lazy girl watching the Brady Bunch. I wasn't doing anything, and he would say, come in here and sing with me. I owe everything to him. I learned how to write songs and how to be in a band because of him. And in one of their earliest musical excursions, Eric roped his kid sister into singing an original song he'd written called Say It, Stick It in the Hole. (laughs) they were kids it was ostensibly about a pencil sharpener but uh eric knew it was cheeky gwen (laughs) later told rolling stone in 1996 my brother made me do it and that was really how it was to be for many years to come she would say growing up my brother was the one with all the talent and all the focus i had him so i didn't have to do anything you know so this is when ska takes over both Stefani kids were incredibly taken by the sounds of imported Jamaican ska and also the late 70s English subgenre known as two-tone, which was basically ska mixed with elements of punk and early New Romantic New Wave. Were you ever in the two-tone? That seems like something you could maybe get into.
2: <laughs> um, No, but it is fascinating to me. I mean, it's interesting because it, it's not the... I, I hate using the term authentic, but there's like an element to British ska that's way more, mm. that is way more authentic yeah. than American ska because like you're growing up in lily white ass Anaheim, but like all the British guys obsession with ska kind of did come from the fact that a lot of them were like council estate neighbors yeah. with a bunch of people from the Caribbean. I mean, Paul Simon and from the clash who sings their probably their most reggae song, uh, guns of Brixton. Um, He talks about, like, he only listened to, like, dub and reggae growing up. He was coming at punk from the complete opposite direction of, you know, like, uh, Joe Strummer being super into, like, Gene Vincent and stuff. I mean, Mm. it's interesting because it's actually kind of like the way that urban blues took hold. I mean, it was like when um, there was sort of a great migration from West Indies countries to... Britain especially Coventry which is where the the specials are formed and that's where you get the they throw the giant sound system parties where mm-hmm. they would uh, daisy chain all the speakers together and do all that and so i mean that's the environment that the the specials come out of and that's sort of my issue with american ska is that it does take this genuinely syncretic cross cultural product and smooth away all the edges into a bunch of white people dancing around in suits and checkered ties
0: do you like um i mean the the music that really got (laughs) do you like
2: ska
0: well Well, i mean the music that really got uh eric and gwen stefani excited and you know wanting to make music was stuff like madness Madness. eric yeah brought home the stiff record seven inch of baggy trousers and that was like that was it for him that's what made him want to just sit at the piano all day and just pound out madness melodies and stuff and they loved The specials, as you mentioned, English Mm -hmm. Beat and Selector, I think was a big one. Were you ever into any of them?
2: No, I think the only stuff that I actually still listen to from that is like the Please Scratch Perry, like the dub stuff, because it just, it's so spacey and like, it's almost like drone music, you know? Yeah. And Lee Scratch Perry's hilarious. Uh, He's one of the best interviewees of all time. Just a a genuine crazy person. Lee Scratch Perry's talking about burning down his studio because it was possessed. Like, that's what's interesting. Like, you give me the really insane people. uh, Not not a bunch of dorks from Anaheim. Well, getting back to the dorks from Anaheim. (laughs) You know, I mean...
0: Eric and Gwen Stefani were these bored suburban kids in this seriously boring suburb of LA Anaheim and there was something about the way these English groups celebrated the mundane things about life, going to school, getting stuck in the rain, taking the bus with all these raucous up-tempo horn-driven tracks that really appealed to them, gave a sense of I guess romance and excitement to their own boring everyday lives so you can almost see why it would resonate with kids in the boring suburbs. At Eric's insistence, he and Gwen made their concert debut at a school talent show in the mid 80s when they played on my radio by the selectors a pretty cool first concert song mm-hmm. uh gwen this is adorable couldn't remember the words and held the lyric sheet in her hand the whole time which is a front person no-no but i love it all the same <laughs> she was clearly very nervous and to help with her confidence her mother made her address And it was a tweed outfit copied from the dress that Julie Andrews wears in The Sound of Music when Fraulein Maria leaves the Abbey and sings, I Have Confidence in Me. She was hoping that would, like, give her daughter more confidence on the stage. I mean, Gwen Stefani fans know that she loves The Sound of Music. It's her favorite movie, and she would revisit it on the track, Wind It Up, from her second solo album, The Sweet Escape, which samples The Lonely Goat Herd. This is just the first of many instances of Gwen Stefani being an adorable nerd. She was also a big fan of making her own clothes, and she would later mm-hmm. say, there were so many disaster stories about me staying up all night trying to make something for a show the next day. Apparently, she didn't even have her own stylist until the 2000s, so at the height of No Doubt's fame, she was choosing all her own outfits and, you know, putting rhinestones on shirts and stuff, but she was doing all that herself. Uh, yeah, researching this episode really made me like Gwen Stefani a lot more. She seems... Was- Despite what you said at the top of
2: the episode, she's very sweet. Yeah, I, she's, 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 yeah, you know, whatever. I don't, I, I bear her no quarrel. I mean, she was <laughs> married to Gavin Rossdale, so the lady's yeah. done her time. <laughs> <laughs> So it wasn't
0: long after this school talent show performance that Eric and Gwen Stefani decided to form a proper band. And the siblings joined forces with Gwen's co-worker at a local Dairy Queen, a young Bad Brains fan by the name of John Spence. And he was an upbeat, effervescent guy who was fond of sprinkling the phrase, no doubt, into conversations, a habit that would yield the
2: band's name.
0: And this John Spence guy would be the frontman extraordinaire, center stage, doing backflips, while the somewhat reticent Gwen would sing back up and kind of keep to herself at the edge of the stage. Eric Stefani would be playing keyboards and serve as the band's chief songwriter, and that was a nucleus of the group. Their sound, especially in this embryonic era, was a funny mix of influences. Uh, Writing his profile in Spin, Jonathan Bernstein characterized no doubt as, quote, the last American new wave group, rinky-dink keyboards, farting horns, (laughs) staccato guitars, and vibrato-splattered vocal gurgles, quacks, and squeals. And their two-tone ska influence would help establish them as vanguards of the third wave ska scene alongside Real Big Fish, Less Than Jake, The Mighty Mighty Stones, Sublime, and your favorite, Rancid, and their refracted take on the specials.
2: You know, it's funny that they covered, uh, not Rancid, but no doubt, they covered um, It's My Life, the Talk Talk song. So yeah. there is that like, there is that like, um, new wave, wave kind of uh, influence. Also, you found someone comparing them to Oingo Boingo. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, the title <laughs> track
0: "The Tragic Kingdom sounds like a Danny Elfman thing. Yeah, we'll get into that later. It's like psychedelic carnival from hell type track
2: well as most bands end up fi- the position that most bands find themselves in is needing a bassist and uh <laughs> we enter tony canal who i don't know do do fans hate him do, do i don't fans, think anymore the... yeah i won't even you can't call him the villain in this love story yeah but i mean but they were he's children a, he's a
0: divisive figure
2: well, Tony Canal, born in India, raised in England, and arrived in the Golden State at the age of 11. Um, Tony joined the band after seeing one show of theirs at the age of 16. He auditioned a week later, and after playing two songs with them, he was in the band. And uh, Gwen was smitten. Instantly. <laughs> she, yeah, she said she ran home after this first rehearsal and stared at herself in the mirror and said, Oh my God, what am I going to do? Um, oh yeah. come on, that's really cute. It is cute. I mean, you know, they're children. They're teenagers, yeah, man.
0: Yeah. Um she's a year older than him, I think. So it's got the like Lindsay Stevie thing. Wasn't Stevie
2: oh, Nixon a year older than uh, oh. Lindsay? oh how much cocaine was there? <laughs> yeah, we don't have to talk yeah, about probably that. Not much. <laughs> So it did take a few months, but after a house show, Tony and Gwen walked home together and she made the first move. Uh, she said, dude, are you going to kiss me or what? And Tony admirably thought of the band first. <laughs> he said, no, what about the band? Uh, since it was an unspoken rule that no one in the band date Gwen, which was sort of, I guess, um, ambiently in the air because of Eric, right? As the Our band big leader. brother is the leader of the band. So yeah, it's a pretty big reason not to. And I guess she warmed down, but he assumed it was going to be like a bit of a fling, and uh, she fell hard. Uh To use Gwen's words, she was in love. But uh, they had to, what are they, sneaking around? How do you do that when you're playing in a rehearsal space like the size yeah. of a postage stamp? I guess things came to a head during a Halloween party that they were playing, where Tony showed up in costume, dressed as a woman, And, uh, before Gwen got there, his bandmates all took him aside and said, if we find out you're going out with Gwen, you're dead. Uh, (laughs) that brings us to the lovely evocative image of, uh, Tony Canal dressed as a woman sitting outside on a curb, crying his mascara off. Oh, um...
0: Yeah, he said that their relationship was, I think his quote was, a secret of immense proportions. Like, this wasn't like, oh, let's keep this, like, secret, because it just adds a little excitement to it. Like, no, this was for real. They didn't want anyone to know.
2: Yeah, Uh, yeah, and he took her to prom, uh, at which point she was already a college freshman, which must have scored him immeasurable points uh, (laughs) with his classmates. You're bringing the college girl to your high school prom. Um, Did you ever date
0: anyone in a band?
2: Or in your band? No. No, well, I mean, other than my wife, but we were only in the Halloween cover bands yeah. together. Um, no, I don't know. It's a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, but you know, we got all these great stories out of it, right. and some ska. <laughs> um, anyway, they worked together. They had the same part-time job at, at what a target a department a store bo- or something. Yeah. Tony again kind of went in this with a different set of expectations than Gwen. Uh, she was heavily invested, and uh, she said, "This is a semi-alarming quote from a college freshman. All I ever did was look at Tony and pray that God would let me have a baby with him." Uh, this intensity would ultimately drive Tony away and inspire a lion share of the tracklist on Tragic Kingdom. But before we get to that, <laughs> we come as we must to the bindi she yeah man i mean i don't think a lot of this band would fly in 2022 you know or the harajuku girls phase but um i guess she passed it off as a a loving tribute to tony's uh culture that uh she got from his mom who was indian it it should be said yes yes yes
0: so there you go (laughs) but back in 1987 no doubt I can't even say they were at a crossroads. They they had barely <laughs> set out on their journey. They were barely a year old. But they were still making a name for themselves as a party band in the L.A. area. And in December of 1987, they were offered a gig at the Roxy Club, which, as we talked about in the Guns N' Roses episode, was the hub of the L.A. music scene on the Sunset Strip at the time. And the band's lead singer, John Spence, was so pumped for this. He urged everyone to rehearse all through their Christmas vacation because this seemed like their big break. And then something absolutely horrific happened on december 21st just days before the gig spence drove to a deserted parking lot and shot himself at the age of 18 and he left a two-page letter that read in part i think i felt too much pain and all i see in my future is more and he signed it i'm sorry (sighs) bye and the bands were beside themselves because he seemed so up and energetic you know he's the guy at the front of the stage doing backflips and he just seemed so chipper all the time and eric stefani i mean no one in the band really ever figured it out but eric stefani theorized that maybe it had something to do with this pressure of the upcoming gig so the surviving members announced that the roxy gig would be no doubt's final show and they played it as a tribute to john spencer their fallen front man but ultimately they decided to reunite a month later believing that john would have wanted them to keep going and there's an unreleased song called dear john that pays tribute to their their friend So to take over the spot as a lead vocalist, they hired a guy by the name of Alan Mead, who was described by Gwen as a, quote, disco smooth dork. (laughs) I don't know what disco smooth means, but it's very evocative. Uh, But then he and his girlfriend had an unplanned pregnancy, so he quit the band to get married and become a father, and he left Gwen as No Doubt's front woman forevermore. And then the remainder of the classic No Doubt lineup began to coalesce around Gwen her brother, Eric, and bassist, Tony Connell. First was Tom Dumont, a guitarist who'd received Kiss's Destroyer album as a Christmas gift, and that kicked off a lifetime of metal shredding. And we auditioned for the band. He disguised his long hair with a ponytail tucked into his hat because he wanted to try to hide his whole metal thing. And then <laughs> drummer Adrian Young was a longtime fan of the band, and he was so smitten with Gwen that he once called the number on their DIY cassettes that they sold at concerts just as an excuse to talk to her. And once, I guess he'd heard that maybe she and Tony had broken up, so he went to the department store where she worked to try to ask her out. Um, No dice. But when No Doubt were looking for a new drummer, he went to the audition. Uh, He really wanted the job. He lied and said he'd been playing drums for eight years instead of barely a year. But then he became their full-time drummer. And he was famous within the band for disrobing at the drop of a hat, which given his apparent feelings for Gwen, reads as slightly exhibitionist and suspect. But I'll choose not to dwell on it. So by 1990, the no-doubt lineup is complete.
2: Diet Flea
0: <laughs>
2: is what I would call that guy. Um, Please read the uh, the heading on this. <laughs> First you get the ska, then you get the flop, then you get the power. <laughs> That's a good one, I have to say. Yeah, no doubt plays they're they're gigging around LA playing festivals in the early nineties and they um attract the attention of a gentleman named Tony Ferguson, who is an ex uh stiff records a was he A and R there too? I think he was an A and R guy, yeah. And so now he was working for Interscope, uh newly formed by Jimmy Iovini. Uh and Tony Ferguson I just read that he was impressed by seeing a bunch of stage divers at one of their shows and uh, hmm. took Ivini to a gig, and uh, Ivani said, that girl will be a star in five years. And this was 1991, so almost five years to the day. <laughs> Way to be, Jimmy. Um, the band released their self-titled debut in 1992, recording at the classic move of uh, in the middle of the night, the night <laughs> shift at the studio when the rate was cheaper. <laughs> I love how many things this pops up in bands, like, bios. Because this, when I was making recording in studios, that was never even, like, offered to me. <laughs> like, everyone was like, no, we're not recording this overnight. We, we, no. Like, I would uh, imagine anyway.
0: you have to pay the engineers and producers half yeah. and a half for being on Yeah.
2: Um, but, you know, the album took a dive, uh, as one would expect in the climate of 1992. <laughs> so slotting your friendly, your radio friendly, quirky ska new wave up against Alice in Chains. <laughs> and nevermind. And yeah, 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 yeah. If you want you know, if you wanted an illustrative, uh, anecdote from the time the band gave away promo kazoos. <laughs> I didn't even, yeah, that seems like an Eric Stefani thing. Like, he was the one
0: Wait, yeah. who was more in the whole Danny Elfman, Oingo Boingo stuff. Like the, He brought, like, elements of, like, weird ska cabaret to the whole mix. So, yeah, that seems like it's something that comes from him. Which, again, Lane, made Lane them-
2: Staley. Yeah, Lane Staley showed up to Alice in Chains' concerts with a syringe hanging out of his arm. And no doubt, it's like, have a, have a kazoo. Oh... <laughs> uh. <laughs> Anyway, the label yanked their, uh, tour support. I, this is, that's rough. When you bomb that hardly, the label's like, we're not even sending you on tour anymore. And, needless to say, did not ask for a follow-up. Yeah. Tell them they
0: blew their budget on the the second album on Kazoos.
2: The Kazoos were a bad move. Uh, (laughs) Um, and, uh... (laughs) You know, I just mentioned this earlier. The L.A. scene at the time is dominated by, you know, sort of the fallout of hair metal. Because all those hair metal bands were still big at this point in the early 90s. And, um, you know, as I also alluded to earlier, garbage white guy funk, except for Fishbone, who (laughs) rule, but no doubt didn't fit into that landscape. As Gwen would later tell Interview Magazine, we were always the dork band from Anaheim. We never were cool enough or tough enough because we grew up in Orange County with all those punk bands. We played with them, but I always felt like Shirley Temple, just <laughs> this little lollipop out there. And I could never have a really raspy or loud screaming voice. We just never fit in. Plus, all the LA people looked down on us because we were from Orange County. We weren't cool. In uh, and, and the Rolling Stone profile, they... Uh, Note that her vanity case had stickers that just said dork on it.
0: <laughs> uh, Have you ever seen video from like late 80s, early 90s of Gwen Stefani? She like brings it. She's pogoing. She's like yeah, really doing pushups yeah, like on headband. stage. Yeah. I remember all
2: that. Yeah. Oh, man. They said. Yeah. Anyway, at one point, a DJ for a uh, massively influential L.A. radio station, K-Rock, said at the time, it would take an act of God for this band to get on the radio. <laughs> Um, yeah, and they, uh, in Behind the Music, I I remember this, they talk about their tour dates for the touring behind this record, where there were seven members of the band and four people in the audience at the bar. And they were only there because they'd met him at the hotel and put him on the list, so they didn't even pay. Uh, Gwen later said, we had some really good shows when no one was there, I'm telling you, which, uh, Jordan, you know, you and I have played <sighs> yeah. gutter, four bands of four, at a, on Wednesday. Uh, they were great shows. Yeah, those are some of the best ones. And they were still uh, they were still all in college around this time. So, you know, at least, eh, you know, eh, whatever. At least they at least they had a backup plan. Yeah, so what were we doing in college? Like, we didn't have, we weren't signed to Interscope. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at least I wasn't playing Ska. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> does Ska still have, I'm sure Ska still has Defenders. This, was, this is going to be like them, a Red Hot Chili sure. Peppers thing where they're going to, like, come uh, out of the woodwork after me. I'll find you. Yeah, I was going to say, what are they going to do? Like dance around me and say, pick it up a bunch of times. (laughs) Hit me with a trombone. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much
0: Information in just a moment.
2: So, uh, no doubt we're upset with Interscope at uh, dragging their feet and letting them uh, put out their follow-up album. So, they uh, recorded a bunch of songs in the garage of their shared house on Beacon Avenue in Anaheim, which had belonged to Gwen and Eric Stefani's grandmother. And uh, when their grandmother died, it went to her parents, and they uh, agreed to let them turn it into a studio rehearsal place. And it's in the beginning of the Just a Girl video, also uh, Trapped in a Box. Uh literally around the corner from Disneyland, this uh, you know, rehearsal studio spot looms large, as they say in the band's legend. And it was sold a few years back to someone who had no idea who they were. Um, <laughs> which, you know, sunrise, sunset. They banged out an album's worth of material over a weekend, calling it the Beacon Street Collection. And uh Sounds like a mall. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> the Claire's Beacon Street Collection. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Does it? I didn't listen to it. i have never. I'll never listen to it. What does it sound like, Jordan? Give me your capsule review. It's more raw
0: than a lot of the stuff that you would hear on the radio years later from Tragic Kingdom and Return Saturn. Sure. Um, it definitely is what was lacking on the debut album. Like that one, maybe seemed a little more polished than what their fans were used to. Whereas this almost felt like a live album, and it also had the track with Bradley Noel from uh, Sublime, which is weird. Um, I don't really understand how they were able to get away with just recording an album on their own while signed to a major label. And then they just printed it up themselves and sold it at concerts. Like, I guess that's just speaks to how little Interscope thought of them. They're like, Oh yeah, we don't care what you're doing.
2: So they sold, uh, they pressed in a thousand copies in a month or two. I just saw this sold a hundred thousand copies. That's wild for something recorded in a, a house. Um, but, uh, you know, rather than being furious, Jimmy Iovini uh, perhaps wisely saw the dollar signs and uh, decided to let him record a proper follow up.
0: Unfortunately for this new album, they were turning in these like six to eight minute long epics that were just all convoluted and didn't fit on a pop album at all. And only two of them, both by Eric Stefani, actually made it onto the Tragic Kingdom track list as we know it. There's the psychedelic-ish song The Climb, and also the title track, which describes a dystopian Disneyland and Walt's cryogenically frozen tears as dripping icicles, which there you get the Danny Elfman Mm -hmm. oingo-boingo type thing there. Um, While we're here, why not do a little sidebar on walt disney's frozen head but you think why not yeah let's yeah. do it so despite the persistent urban legend walt disney is not frozen i was actually kind of not kind of very disappointed to learn this the new york times reported in 2003 that his death certificate says he was cremated and according to a pbs documentary his ashes were interred at a family mausoleum at forest lawn cemetery in glendale california And People close to Disney have also refuted this frozen theory. His own daughter, Diane, wrote in her 1972 biography, there is absolutely no truth that my father, Walt Disney, wished to be frozen. I doubt that my father had ever even heard of cryogenics. I question this because Walt was really into technology and futurism. And at the time of his death, he was working on Epcot, you know, the experimental Mm -hmm. prototype community of tomorrow. That was his last big, project. So I wouldn't put it past them to be aware of it. And the subject of cryogenics was actually pretty big at the time he died in 1966, because there had been a book that had been published a few years earlier by Robert C.W. Ettinger called The Prospect of Immortality. And that's really what brought the topic of cryogenic freezing to popular consciousness. So it's really unclear with this whole rumor that Disney froze himself, got started. Uh, it's probably due in part to the fact that his funeral was kept really under wraps. And so you factor that in with his reputation as a technological innovator. And there you go. People just kind of when they when there's a lack of information. We know this as digital news
2: journalists. Uh, people oh, wait. start to. Do you want to know where it came from? Where? I don't know. Uh, According to PBS, (laughs) in early 1967, a few weeks after Disney's death in 1966, a reporter for a tabloid newspaper called The National Spotlight claimed he had snuck into St. Joseph's Hospital in Burbank directly across the street from Disney Studios where Walt was being treated. And uh, the reporter said that he disguised himself as an orderly, broke into a storage room, and saw Disney suspended in a cryogenic metal cylinder. I did not know that was where it came from. Wow! But uh, you know, they PBS does uh, debunk it. Says the national spotlight doesn't appear in most major newspaper archives. But you know, that doesn't necessarily prove uh, prove anything. And people can just mimeograph whatever they want. And yeah, in the sixties, and how deep
0: does the rabbit hole go? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the hospital that he was being treated at when he died was right across from the Burbank Studios, and I guess at night the staff at Disney would leave all the lights on on the studio so he could see it and just kind of feel like bolstered, knowing that, you know, work was still going on. Wait. What?
2: It gets deeper. Does it get deeper? (laughs) Bob Nelson, former president of the Los Angeles-based Cryonic Society of California, gave a 1972 interview to the Los Angeles Times directly claiming that Disney wanted to be frozen. In 2013, LA Magazine interviewed Nelson again. Chris Nichols asked him to elaborate. And uh, he said, Nelson said, quote, We got a call from Walt Disney Studios asking us how many people had been frozen and what kind of facilities we had and who the medical staff was. Oh. This is all from an SFGate uh, article, by the way. So if you're interested, it's out there. It's from October of last year. So.
0: Whoa. I am very. I wonder what was happening on October of last year that would. Yeah, nothing else. Be an anniversary. Yeah. Nothing, nothing big going on. <laughs> Do you know the last thing that Walt Disney ever wrote? A slur? <laughs> <laughs> no, literally, like like pen and paper. Last thing he ever when he last time he ever put pen to paper.
2: It was that S logo that people draw in middle school. <laughs> I don't know. What do you, you want me to just keep pitching stuff?
0: It was Kurt Russell. He wrote the name Kurt Russell. Oh, I did I Nobody think you knows why told
2: me this before. Oh, yes. Did I? Oh, I'm repeating my story. I Uh-oh. think you told me that. Oh man, maybe his that's consciousness probably. lives on in in Kurt Russell. He was like, That's the vessel <laughs> that's the vessel I wanted into." Yeah. <laughs> oh
0: well, yeah, because the Kurt movie Russell. that I think the next movie that Kurt Russell made was called The Computer War Tennis Shoes. Yeah. yeah in yeah, like yeah, nineteen sixty-nine. Yeah. So maybe, yeah, maybe that's some kind of like hint.
2: Wow. Kurt if, Actually, you, Kurt, if you're trapped, blink twice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Did you see, there is this incredible movie that came out in a couple years ago, I think 2018, called The Further Adventures of Walt's Frozen Head. And the whole plot <laughs> of this movie is that Walt's head is unfrozen once a year and just brought around the park in a jar to oversee operations. And it's just about a day with this like park lackey carting around Walt's frozen head in the jar. And they're like evolving relationship throughout the day. Um, <laughs> and the really hilarious part is that this was made without the knowledge or permission of the Walt Disney Company or his family, which of is course. hilarious, like that they just weren't sued into oblivion. Yeah, that's so. true. Anyhow, <laughs> no doubts, five and a half minute title track about Walt's frozen head was not destined to set the charts on fire. So Interscope called in a ringer producer Matthew Wilder, AKA the guy who sang Break My Stride back in the 80s. That's right. They got the Break My Stride guy to come in and try to (laughs) polish their sound. Not exactly the coolest dude in the world, but he had a background in idiosyncratic new wave and they thought that he'd be the right guy to rein in Eric Stefani's long ska prog epics. I'm really sorry. I just said ska prog.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, You know, there is such a thing.
2: I'm sure there is. Yeah. 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 Catch 22, I think, is the big one. Is a uh, really all the marching band, all the again, all the marching band kids I knew in high school were like, oh, Catch 22, great, great horn charts. Wow. <laughs> Moving right along.
0: Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, no doubt were not happy by having this interloper in their midst. Despite his (laughs) new wave credentials, they just felt like they were being intruded on by this 80s has-been. And Gwen later characterized it as such an invasion at first.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously the guy taking it hardest was Eric, uh, who had you know, as Gwen and pretty much everyone else says had been the creative engine of the band, writing all of this material over the past eight years. That is tough, too, being in a band for nearly a decade and you get a guy coming in being like, we're throwing all this, in it. So, yeah, he hated the idea of a stranger coming in and meddling with the process and the song. So he started to distance himself from the band, first from the writing and then the recording. And then he even just stopped rehearsing, which was all the more awkward because all the rehearsals were held at his house. Uh, And finally, he quit the band in September of 1994. He had previously done some animation work on the first two seasons of The Simpsons. And so he just went and took a job there as an animator. And uh, you said he also did some work on uh, Ren and Stimpy, right? Yeah, I was unable to find exactly what, but I
0: I saw, I think, on his IMDb page that he'd worked on that too.
2: His favorite uh, Simpsons character is Bart, and he said because he relates to him. And, uh, you know, he actually went and subsequently drew his old bandmates into the Homer Palooza episode of The Simpsons in 1996. One of my favorite Simpsons lines of all time uh, Billy Corgan smashing pumpkins, Homer Simpson smiling politely. I think that is a Conan line. It had to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he also, they they made an appearance on King of the Hill, where they played uh, oh, Bobby yeah. Hill's prom. The <laughs> long shadow of the Fox animation block in the 90s. Uh, one of the last songs Eric wrote for No Doubt was called Bye Bye Birdie, which is a mournful farewell song about a baby bird who needed to fly off into the sky. Little on the nose there, Eric. <laughs> uh, never recorded, but message received. Um, and uh, there's a big Rolling Stone profile from 1996 of the band by Chris Heath. um, He wrote the incredible Spice Girls profile for Rolling Stone, too, that we talked about in our Spice Girls uh, episode. Great writer. Um, but uh, yeah, Eric had copped to being a little bit um off track, I guess you want you, you put it as. Uh, He said, I was trying too hard to put my personality or my being on this planet through the music, and I didn't know how to express myself any other way. So when that was compromised, I was lost. But I think I found myself more by losing that and having to act as a human. Art should imitate life, not the other way around. Uh, Consequently... He moved on to forming a ragtime band, performing things like Scott Joplin's seminal composition "Maple Leaf Rag" and the theme to the Little Rascals. That is, did this man ever? Ha- did he ever have sex? Once, I, <laughs> I, you know,
0: I watching him on the behind the music episode, which was recorded, I think, in like 2000 or taped in 2000. So it wasn't even like that late after he left like only a couple years there's a again I don't know this man I know very little about him there's a a haunted look he seems unhappy Mm. not necessarily that he left the band just in general I, Mm. I get kind of I mean, this whole thing reminds me of Brian Wilson, like the guy mm. who started the band was the creative engine, decided to just back away, and then the band would say, well, no way, and then built a studio in Brian's house to try to, like, make it easy for him, and then mm. he just retreated to his room and was like, no, 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 I really don't want to deal with this. Like, that's the sense that I'm getting here. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know much about what his well, deal is. Maybe it's gotta I'm be a
2: it's got to be a real head trip, you know. You yeah. you lead a yeah. band, you lead a band for eight years. Somebody comes in, takes all your personality out of it, and they become one of the biggest bands in the world. Fair, yeah. Um, but the band did step up, although it was a blow to them. Um, Gwen says in the Behind the Music, we can't have a band without Eric. No doubt is Eric Stefani. Uh, Tony echoed that. He said when Eric left, it was a real pivotal moment for the rest of us because he is such an incredibly creative musical genius. When he left, it created this sort of, okay, what are we going to do now? But that forced Tom, Gwen, Adrian, and myself to step up. Uh, (laughs) You made the comparison to Pink Floyd following Sid Barrett's (laughs) departure, which is either a compliment or an insult to those two men. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so they did. The other guys and girl in the band decided to start... Keep on trucking. Yeah, keep on trucking, step into the spotlight, fill the void, whatever uh, belabored music critic uh, cliche we're going to land on there. Uh, (laughs) Tom DeMont, the guitarist uh, Shredhead, he studied classical music composition, classical guitar. Well, he actually, I saw that he... Studied music theory for like five semesters and then left when they made him play classical guitar, which is funny to me because the solo on, um, don't speak is like Spanish guitar. Yeah. yeah. And I love string guitar. <laughs> well, but he used a pick, which apparently like big enraged no. the, yeah, big, no, 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 no. Um, who the f*** compared Adrian Young to Neil Peart? I don't remember <laughs> and for the sake of their Twitter mentions. And you, I won't. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and Tony Canald played in his high school jazz band. And uh, oh, yeah, I remember in the um, he was obsessed with Prince in Behind the Music. Doesn't he talk about uh, listening to Computer Blue on on repeat endlessly? Yeah. Oh, man, I just dredged that one up from my subconscious i'm shocked at how
0: much you're able to recall from that considering you hate them i told you i watched it so
2: much it just was on all the time that one bon jovi and poison i know uh, uh anyway the david cassidy one was a big one for me that was on all the time that was sad though
0: well yeah yeah how low was i on the sidewalk licking the curb that's how low i'll never forget oh my god yeah that's rough
2: uh and you know gwen had uh you know she does have she looked like uh ava gardner right or who am i thinking of i don't know you know what i can kind of see ava gardner but she was doing the pin curl thing right she kind of had that that... oh on the cover when she
0: was doing the whole retro yeah vargas girl thing Yep. yeah 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 i can see um ava gardner veronica lake with the hair too that's who i was thinking of sorry
2: um Gwen, uh, you know, she started writing her own lyrics for the first time, including Spiderwebs and Sunday Morning. And that brought, uh, you know, a newfound authenticity to the group. And probably made it a little also less arch and and weird to have this kind of <laughs> diaristic, uh, you know, lyrics as opposed to Prague ska. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So she, there
0: she was singing her own words. And boy, did she have a lot to say. It was traumatic enough when her friend took his own life and she was forced into the role as no doubt sole lead singer and front woman. Then her big brother, the guy who'd been a role model and sort of her guide her whole life just leaves. And it has to be said that was tough on their relationship. After he left the band, Gwen and Eric went through therapy together at their parents insistence to patch up their relationship. And Gwen later said, I didn't want to lose my brother, you know, because everything that I am is because of him. So that's all really rough with the band mess, family mess. Now we got a romantic mess, too. Gwen gets dumped by bassist Tony Canal in the same time frame. They'd been together nearly eight years, and he was feeling stifled by their relationship. He wanted space to grow, all the usual reasons that people give. Uh, I mean, they lived together, worked together, played music together. That's bound to be a strain on anyone's relationship. And Gwen later admitted, I forced Tony to go out with me. This is her quote. He wasn't even interested. I don't know about that. (laughs) When we made out that first night, I think he thought it was more of a one night kiss. But then we started going out. And after that first year, I was going, when are we going to get married? And yeah, hearing that quote from earlier about how she would just look into his eyes and pray to God that they would have a baby together. Yeah, maybe she wanted more than he was able to give, which is sad. Uh, So this was an awful time for Gwen. And as she said in No Doubts Behind the Music Special, everyone I loved the most, my two boys, were gone. That's awful. And she elaborated on this in an interview with the OC Register during the album's 25th anniversary in 2020. She said, quote, I was very naive. I was very sheltered and I depended so much on Tony. And then when we broke up, I was like, I don't know what to do with my life. I was so dependent on him. And then with my brother leaving, I mean, I followed Eric around like a puppy and looked up to him and was doing whatever he told me to do. So to put it in classic rock terms, Gwen was going through a Pink Floyd Sid Barrett situation, which we touched on earlier, a Fleetwood Mac relationship drama situation, and the Beach Boys Brian Wilson style family crisis. All at once, all one person. No one else in the group knew what that felt like. All of those things except her. That's a lot. And Gwen used to say that Eric, this talented cartoonist, invented, you know, in quotes, Gwen Stefani, the pop star, as a cartoon. But now she was forced to take control. And I think it exposed the steeliness in her that maybe even she didn't realize she had. Uh, Tony, when he broke up with her, offered to quit, no doubt, and she wouldn't let him. And then when an interviewer asked her if she'd offered to leave, too, she just laughed and said, hell no, which is awesome. Um, Yeah, the whole experience essentially made a songwriter out of Gwen, and she began writing lyrics that tried to make sense of everything that was happening around her, especially this breakup. And Tony Canal, to his credit, encouraged her to write these lyrics, even when they were very clearly attacking him. And he later said, to me, the art was more important. And she would write these songs like Happy Now and Sunday Morning, both of which are pretty vicious. And then she would immediately call Tony up and share them and say, dude, I totally wrote the raddest song. I have to read it to you. Promise you won't get mad at me. And then read these lyrics that are just ripping him apart. Don't Speak is the most famous song Gwen wrote about her breakup. But Happy Now is the most scathing. And it's basically Gwen taunting her ex after he breaks up with her, saying she loves her newfound freedom. And the words include, you killed the pair. Now only one is breathing. There's no looking back. This time I mean it. Are you happy all by yourself? You've got no one else. You're by yourself. All by yourself all by yourself pretty brutal yeah (laughs) she would say it's the perfect revenge song of someone who got hurt in love it was really meant to be painful and she's saying this in like some kind of promo video and tony's sitting right there and he says well it worked so thank you and he stands up and walks (laughs) off camera and she laughs it's like seems like it's meant to be a joke but uh way harsh ty (laughs) That man has a... a
2: parlance at the times. That man has a steely resolve at the core of him. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. The the videos are interesting to see them interact and hear her talk about the inspiration behind these songs. And uh, a K-Rock DJ who claimed that it would take an act of God to get them played on the radio, uh, played happy now as the band's popularity was on the ascent. And people knew the relationship drama, the heart of the lyrics at this point. And as the song ended, the DJ leans into the mic and goes... Take that, Tony. <laughs> so this is all over town. This is, Your relationship, Dirty Laundry, is being beamed out by the most popular radio station in L.A. And everyone knows what it's about. So this, this I funny. Mean, <sighs> again, Gwen, poor Gwen. It's a ter- terrible situation for everybody. Yeah. And guitarist Tom Dumont said in the Behind the Music special that sessions were... A little awkward at this point, understandably. He said, quote, There was so much tension in the room. It was just so thick, it was almost unbearable. There were many occasions when Gwen had to just leave the rehearsal room to collect herself. And she later commented that even though the breakup was difficult, it made her a better songwriter and helped her find her creative power. And... The whole genesis of this album is especially interesting to me because it shows that it really does follow in the grand tradition of the extremely intimate, almost confessional singer-songwriter stuff. But while Alanis Morissette was taken much more seriously with Jagged Little Pill, which was released four months before Tragic Kingdom, no doubt, and specifically Gwen Stefani, were treated as superficial and fluffy. And maybe it's the band's presentation. Maybe it's the blonde thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, maybe it's the up-tempo tracks. Maybe it's the horns that you hate so much. I don't know. (laughs) But I think Tragic Kingdom has just as much emotional authenticity as your Jagged Little Pills, your 21s, your Fiona Apples title, your tapestries even. Um, Might not be equal for a musical or technical standpoint, but I think it has that same degree of uh, of emotional authenticity
2: and truth. I mean, it's tough. I wonder if they actually like expected to have to tour and promote this thing for a year. They talked about that. Well,
0: it was they were supposed to tour for, I think, two or three months. They went out for, like, I think it's 28 months, ultimately. Yeah. And that kind of drove them a little nuts, understandably, because everyone all around the world, not only are they just knocked off balance with the fact that they're traveling for years at a time, but they're just constantly being asked about all the most heartbreaking things in their lives. So, yeah, that's got to be rough.
2: Yeah, and this is... um This is also kind of when they start um, foregrounding her. Again, I remember from the Behind the Music thing of them talking about Mm -hmm. like, you know, she is such a charismatic person and she is this just like powerhouse on stage. And the rest of them are kind of, you know, all due respect to the other three just dudes. (laughs) And and so (laughs) like, you know, I'm trying to think of magazine covers at the time, but i'm sure spin spin was one it was riot girly i think we mentioned it later but right. I think the headline was riot girly no doubts something or other yeah yeah um i don't like that headline <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure neither did uh bikini Kill. Yeah. neither did that <laughs> now uh so we get to don't speak that which is you know the archetypal Still their biggest hit, do you think? Or was one of those um, Return of Just Saturn the songs? Just girl might be. Oh, yeah. Okay. But it is, uh, you know, Gwen's uh, Steely Resolve song, <laughs> right? It's
0: with Mac moment. Yeah. It's her, it's her Silver Spring moment.
2: She told Spin, uh, When we broke up, I still forced Tony to kiss me. That's weird. Uh, I was in denial. I might have lost the title of girlfriend, but in my eyes, we were still together. For like a year, he didn't have to come to my house when I demanded it. He didn't have to do anything, but when he felt like it, I was there. It was horrible uh yeah and so that's to unpack there yeah 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 and that's where this uh that's where this song comes from they've been kicking around a rough sketch of it for quite a long time with a different structure different words eric stefani had actually written the music for it and gone through a couple different incarnations before gwen arrived at the final draft of the lyrics um six takes on that guitar solo you think that's a six take guitar solo
0: jordan uh, that's not even six takes to do it they're all stitched together to make the one final one
2: yeah tony said he told uh, complex later because it was so real and we were living it all that stuff came up in that song that's the real deal that's our lives and that's what was happening to us at the time it was a very very intense period of our lives and it was all put out there to share with everybody uh and as you mentioned earlier when the song became a hit they were on tour for two plus years and uh yeah having to rehash your personal low point in front of a massive audience every night for two plus years (laughs) whoa tony later told the guardian of the time we were on tour for tragic kingdom for 28 months we were going through the breakup and in every interview we were talking about it so we were opening this wound on an hourly basis it was so brutal I don't know how, but we made it through.
0: Yeah, I always feel bad when people have a hit written about something traumatic in their lives. And I remember having to interview the guy from Train about Drops of Jupiter, specifically about the 20th anniversary of that song, which is about his mother's death. And I got the sense when I was interviewing him that he didn't particularly feel great about having to sit all day and dredge all this up, despite the fact that, I don't know who was making a promote the 20th anniversary of the song. Cause I don't even know if there was a reissue or anything, but yeah, I know I have, I always feel bad for those people. And I always feel bad being the guy, at the other end of the phone or <laughs> the other end
2: of the microphone or whatever it is, having to ask those questions. Oh man. Anyway, so back to No Doubt. (laughs) Um, You mentioned earlier that the prevailing narrative around this was Tony as villain, uh, which I I don't think that's helped by the video. Don't they do like a lot of shots of him kind of like?
0: Well, we we will touch on this. The video for Don't Speak was basically when everybody in the band were really mad that Gwen was getting all the headlines and getting all the cover shots and everything. And they decided to basically address that head on and do this video that was going to be a big cathartic, like they were going to act out their private dramas on the screen and hope that that kind of helped. But yeah, we'll get more into that later. But that <laughs> was Narrator So voice. that was intentional. It did not.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it did not.
0: They haven't made an album in 10 years.
2: But Gwen, to her credit, uh, went out of the way in various interviews to defend him. Um, she said, everybody's like, God, that guy is a jerk, which is not fair because he didn't have his lyrics to talk about me when I smothered him and he didn't have a life. It must be hard for him to take when people write, how could you leave Gwen? She's so great but they don't know me. They don't see my faults. They just see me however they want to see me. They think I have abs and I don't. I have fat.
0: <laughs> her self-deprecation seems really authentic and it makes me love her, but it also makes me really sad. There's a great part in the spin piece when she says, quote, I want to have a time when I don't need a boyfriend, but it's just natural to want someone. There's nothing better than that. And then after a brief pause, she leans forward and whispers to the journalist, so what did Tony say about me?
5: (sighs) Yeah, Yeah.
2: I mean, what what was she, like, 25, 20... Yeah, younger, I would say, yeah.
0: Boy. And she was still living at home with her dad. There's like a touch on this later, like, she was saying, like, yeah, I kind of want to move to L.A. someday if my dad will let me. Like, they were very young, both chronologically, but also... uh, that mentally is not the way I want to phrase that, but you know what I mean. Yeah, in, sure. In, in a very inexperienced, I'd say, outside of musical stuff. but uh, A really underappreciated track on Tragic Kingdom is Sunday Morning, which sort of blends the sarcasm of just a girl, which we'll talk about in a minute, with the venom of happy now. And clearly it's directed at Tony. Gwen sings, Sappy, pathetic little me. That was the girl I used to be. You had me on my knees. I'd trade you places any day. And according to Tony, he wrote the music to the song to serenade Gwen when she was sick in the bathroom. Uh, he told Complex, Gwen wasn't feeling well, and I was at my parents' house in Yorba Belinda, and I had the guitar. She was sitting in the bathroom, and I was just sitting outside the bathroom singing, kind of serenading her. Uh, I was just singing like, somebody's feeling quite, uh, 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 somebody's feeling quite ill. And that became Sunday Morning. That's how the song started, but obviously it's not about someone feeling ill now. Gwen wrote the lyrics. I find this slightly ungallant snapshot of the song's genesis as maybe revenge for these pointed lyrics. What do you think? Yeah, my girlfriend had diarrhea and was sitting on the toilet, so I sat outside with a guitar and (laughs) and then she took that piece of music I wrote to make her feel better and put mean lyrics about me in there. Yeah. Oh, oh. I don't know. But let's go on to happier happier topics now. Let's have a little, little friendly chin wag about the best songs called Sunday Morning, because there are many. Run them down. Well, it's one of my favorites by Margot Grayon, Sunday Morning from 1968's Take a Picture, I think the album's called. No Great, idea. Great, like, obscure late 60s pop singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sunday Morning by the Velvet Underground, of course. Probably my favorite. Yeah, yeah. Sunday morning by Madness. I mean, of course, these madness super fans have a song named, you know, that share a name of the Madness song. Easy, like a Sunday morning. Mm. We'll count that. Yeah. Commodores. That might be my favorite on here. Sunday morning by Maroon Five. I secretly like that song. No comment. Okay. Uh, (laughs) One Sunday morning by Wilco. We'll count that, even though it's not technically Sunday morning. Yeah. And Matthew Sweet of Ming T with Austin Powers and uh, Susanna Hoffs right and others on Sunday morning too
2: This Am is I my any? Yeah, you are. This is my gotcha oh. journalism moment. <laughs> Sunday morning coming down, you rube. The Chris Christopherson song.
0: Uh you know what? I had that on there and then I took it off because I thought that its title deviated too far from Sunday morning. It's st- Mm, all right. <laughs> but no, you're right. But then
2: okay. that doesn't, then no, that doesn't okay. give us the that doesn't give us the opportunity to tell people the story behind Sunday morning coming down of Chris Christopherson oh. being so desperate to get his demos into the hands of Johnny Cash that he commandeered an Army Reserve helicopter, <laughs> flew it onto Cash's front lawn and strolled up to the front door to give him the demo tape chris christopherson Didn't Cash,
0: like walk out with a gun just because he was like what's going on i mean he probably i mean wouldn't
2: not. you 90 percent of his waking hours
0: yeah somebody. we're being invaded by chris <laughs> christopherson fair Woo.
2: as you meditate on that we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages
5: or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: All right, Spiderwebs.
0: Yes, Spiderwebs, maybe my favorite song on this album. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the song that at least half a dozen people I knew used as their voicemail greeting back in the day because of the, you know, I'm walking in the Spiderwebs, so leave a message and I'll call you back, refrain at the end. Did you have people who did that? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And therein lies the difference between our high school experiences. Uh, This song is basically Destiny's Child's bugaboo before cell phones were a thing. It's inspired by a guy who'd gotten wind of Gwen's breakup with Tony and launched an ardent phone campaign to convince her to go out with him. Never good. Gwen talked about this in a video the group made in 2009 about some of their past songs. She said, I always had a boyfriend, so I never had to deal with guys trying to go out with me. But there was this one guy and he used to call me in the middle of the night and try to sing me poetry on the phone or play acoustic guitar for 15 minutes at a time. I didn't know how to get off the phone. Giving this guy my number was the biggest regret of my life. So she wrote the song with Tony, who is thrilled to note that it's one of the few songs on the record that isn't about him. And, in fact, he and Gwen are the only two people who know who the song's actually about, and they've been very reluctant to share because it's kind of a mean song. Uh, She says in the same video, it's such a mean song, to which Tony adds, not as mean as happy now, which is about him. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Mm -hmm. Uh, Spider-Webs also cements her ties to another new wave pop group fronted by a platinum bombshell, Blondie. Debbie Harry sang about a stalker on one way or another but it was actually another of their songs that inspired Spiderwebs, at least from a musical standpoint. According to Tony Canal, he and Gwen tried to do something like Blondie's cover of The Tide is High, where they use different tempos going from the
2: intro to the main part of the song.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: So
0: that's a musical inspiration from Blondie there. Yeah.
2: Mm. Well, now we arrive at the other standout track on Tragic Kingdom, which is uh, Just a Girl, the song that really, mm. you know, the, as you mentioned earlier, it's this and Don't Speak. Um, It's when they played on their first TV appearance when they were on Conan. And uh, the song that cracked the kingmakers of L.A. radio, K-Rock, which again, for the third time this podcast, had told them it would take an act of God to get them on the radio. Um, And, you know, again, the milieu at this time is stuff like Bad Religion, Rage Against the Machine, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden So what a breath of fresh air to have Gwen Stefani's voice come on over the radio Um, And K-Rock had actually begun to receive complaints about just how few women they played And, you know, talk about the diametrically opposed uh, ideal (laughs) To grunge is just a girl. Um, but uh, you know, her parents figure very highly into this song. We'll talk about in a second how her dad inspired it, but uh, her mom took issue with it, specifically <laughs> uh, the swears. Um, oh. they were going to, they were driving in California when the song became a hit, and her mom said, uh, are you going to say those curse words on stage because she'd invited some of her relatives to the show? But Gwen told her mom that she wasn't planning on swearing, but the frustration grew inside of her. And she drew a line in the sand. She said, no, I'm not going to change my lyrics. My lyrics are my children. <laughs> Who said that? Isn't that from SpinoTap? Ah, whatever. Uh, and her mom didn't talk to her for a week. Ouch. Aww. But the song originally came out of her uh, frustration that when she was dating Tony, her dad at one point uh, scolded her for staying out too late. And then she drove home alone, which he thought was, I guess, dangerous in in the mean streets of Orange County. And she felt that he was being overprotective because she was, in her words, just a girl. Uh, And those, uh, you know, the lyrics, I'm just a girl, all pretty and petite, so don't let me have any rights, before that. Tremendous hook! I've had it up to here. Her vocal performance on that song is really great. She has that. She does that kind of a pout thing. She leans into. Um, yeah. yeah, you you, really you compared cool. it to Leslie Gore's "You Don't Own Me" or mm. uh, Dionne Warwick's "Don't Make Me Over." Gwen later said, "I wouldn't trade being female for anything, but guys don't understand what a burden it can be sometimes." You know, and yeah, and it's it is kind of a companion piece to Spiderwebs, which is about her literally being harassed by a guy on the phone at all hours of the night. <laughs> I remember getting reading. Uh, our school had like the Disney magazine, Disney Adventures, and like I remember reading in that about like Gwen was like the female rocker that it was cool to look up to, and and they made a, such a big deal about her doing. Push-ups on stage and having great abs. (laughs) Uh, Which was, yeah, but I mean, you know. The 90s. Yeah, exactly. But she did break her foot at one point on stage. You know, God love her. Uh, Writing in Pitchfork a few years back, Jillian Mapes said of Just a Girl, it is not a subtle song, but what it's doing is quietly masterful. The sarcasm subverts the underlying victimhood in a sneering way, but victimhood is also something girls, particularly white or privileged girls, quickly understand as a tool for getting what they want. Still, though, mm, there's always somebody out there who's going to miss the message. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Spin asked her about this in 1996, and she said, I hate it when I'm asked what that song is about. The lyrics are so obvious. If you don't think it's sarcastic, you've got to be like an idiot. Ah, <laughs> oh, music journalists. But this song actually uh, presages, presages, prefigures, pre-somethings, Spice Girls, girl power. Um, At least in the States. Yeah, that's true. Mike.com, Tom Barnes writing over there has says, Just a girl helped amplify the message of the Riot Girl movement who, according to their manifesto, fought for the psychic and cultural lives of girls and women everywhere. You know, and it's kind of that bit of, like, uh, putting a little sugar into your message to help it get over into the mainstream. Because Bikini Kill, Brat Bill, Heavens to Betsy, L7, that was uh, not exactly (laughs) radio-friendly sounds. But, no doubt, you know, got the message across by being super, super catchy. Made it onto MTV, you know, and that's the thing about Ska, is it's not threatening. You can, parents can be like, this is fun, I'll take my (laughs) kids to that. Um... Just a Girl, of course, got sinks in uh, Clueless, Romy and Michelle's high school reunion, both of which are, you know, now, if not at the time, looked upon as groundbreaking works of feminist cinema. (laughs) We should do Clueless soon. Yeah, probably. Um, Yeah. And, you know, here we are straight white manning our way through a piece on Gwen Stefani. So we'll go back to Jillian Mapes at Pitchfork. Following the surge of third wave feminism in the early 90s, the mid-90s became the peak of the angry white female era in rock and pop. It was a time when feminized aggression from Hole and Riot Grrrl to Liz Phair and Lannis Morissette was suddenly perceived as being on trend, as if women haven't been furious forever. Stefani, (laughs) girly tomboy ultra Arguably benefited from this kind of branding, even while she maintained the fun, energetic personality that led Courtney Love to dub her a cheerleader and others to call her the anti-Courtney Love. <laughs> um, who hasn't Courtney Love offended at this point? Uh, the rest of her bandmates? All of every single peer from the era? Uh Yeah. She told, anyway, the quote that, uh, that, that this is referencing is uh, Courtney Love told 17, she quote, wasn't interested in being the cheerleader. I'm not interested in being Gwen Stefani. Uh, but, you know, Gwen got her back a few years later with the uh, massive hit in Hollaback Girl, which has the uh, cheerleader chant and the costume in the video. Yeah, and Gwen, you know, I, she has a sense of self-awareness about this. I mean, she said at the time, maybe I should be more of a tough chick. But I'm not. That's not me. I love makeup. I love getting my hair done. I love pedicures. I'm the furthest thing from a rock chick. (laughs) She talks about going to Knott's Berry Farm to see the ice capades. Um, Yeah. Again, sound of music. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Uh, According to, again, that Chris Heath story in Rolling Stone, she was so nervous about her, um, about spelling things that she carried a spell check computer in her bag,
0: which. (laughs) Which is the least punk thing I've ever heard.
2: Yeah, but, uh, you know, girls at this time being able to see all versions of themselves represented is very important. Uh, Ilana Kaplan writing in The Guardian back in 2015. For misunderstood teenage girls everywhere, Stefani stood out as a central voice for the misfits. She was never quite Atlantis or a Spice Girl. She was a tomboy who wasn't afraid to speak up for anyone who is in between. She was the pretty, creative, artsy girl in high school that wasn't afraid to stick up for herself or you. She was a punk in plaid who served as just one of the mm-hmm. guys. Stefani was one of the women that you looked up to for her incredible vocals, and I don't give a damn sentiment. She didn't care what you thought of her, but she did care about her feelings and making sure you knew what they were. And, uh, her fans called themselves Gwenabees. Did they? <laughs> there's a, so, well, journalists called their
0: fans that. Gwenabees, I There's something about, uh, something about that that Doesn't land. (laughs) Ironic, though, coming just in advance of Spice Girls with Wannabe. Yeah. 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 There you go. Yeah. Speaking of Knott's Berry Farm, (laughs) No Doubt's breakthrough record took its name from Knott's Berry's rival, Disneyland. And it's both an ode to the band's hometown and a nod to how Disneyland subtly creeped its way into the band's writing sessions. The Stefanis were from Anaheim. And as we said earlier, the band house on Beacon Avenue was just down the road from the Magic Kingdom. And guitarist Tom Dumont later said, every night we could hear and see the fireworks show from Disneyland. At night, you could hear the Yeti from inside the Matterhorn (laughs) ride growl every 60 seconds, which sounds like hell. And Dumont says that he had a teacher in middle school who used to refer to Disneyland as the Tragic Kingdom, and that helped inspire the title track, which even sampled some theme park announcements, which I'm shocked that Disney were cool with that. Uh, There seem to be many rumors and theories about the meaning of the song, including one from Pitchport claiming that the track is about Walt Disney being evil. Whatever the case, there were apparently no hard feelings with Disney because when Gwen was presented with the key to the city of Anaheim in 2002, the ceremony was held at Disneyland. And this brings us to the cover of the album, another tribute to their hometown. They're from Orange County, Oranges. In an Orange Grove. <laughs> Get it? Not exactly subtle. The band minus Gwen stands in an orange grove while Gwen stands like a 1940s Vargas girl in a retro red dress eagle-eyed fans will notice that there's an extra band member in the background. Gwen apparently insisted that Eric Stefani sit in for the cover shoot, and this was despite the fact that he'd not technically been a member of the band for months, maybe even a year or two at this point, Uh, but she felt that he played a big enough role on the album with the inclusion of two of his songs, plus he contributed to Don't Speak and Different People and Sunday Morning and ended on this, so she felt like he deserved to be on the cover, especially if in addition to the 8 plus years he'd spent fronting the band before that but the decision to include Eric made things a little awkward during the shoot if you look at the sleeve booklet Eric is always standing at the back or at the side and he's usually looking away uh i guess he felt weird being back i guess the other band members felt weird that he was back uh she would later say it was very weird it was horrible so that's sad but you know what's even more horrible the red dress that she wore on the cover got stolen. It was loaned to the Hard Rock Cafe and later displayed at the Fullerton Museum Center in an exhibit called The Orange Groove, Orange County's Rock and Roll History. But then in January of 2005, this dress was stolen. This priceless bit of rock and roll memorabilia taken from under their noses. Can you believe it? Someone finally listened to me and put (laughs) it in a museum where it belonged. And then this happened. I can't believe it. Jesus Christ. Despite the desperate pleas for its return, the dress, which had been appraised at around $5,000 at the time, has still not been recovered. Wow. What else did they take? I I don't know.
2: I, I'm almost guessing just that. Mm, yeah, like a targeted theft. Hmm. It is believed the dress was stolen between 2.30 and 3.30 p.m. on a Tuesday. What was happening in that museum during that time? I'm just imagining a security guard like
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> they're like smashing the glass to get through it. Anyway, you know what I just read that is kind of funny on um on spiderwebs, you know, the steel drums, you know who plays those? Oh yeah. No. Uh Steven Perkins from uh Jane's Addiction, who famously plays steel drums on Jane says. So if you needed yet another vision of the Caribbean as filtered through a white guy from California Hard to get more illustrative than a bunch of ska dorks from Anaheim with a white guy playing steel drums on track one of their breakthrough record. Little on the nose there, world. (laughs) So, Tragic Kingdom, released on October 10th, 1995, uh, I'm just gonna quote you here, exploded onto the music scene like rays of sun after a cold Seattle rainstorm. Yes, that was a grunge simile
0: there. You like that? Like Southern California is different than Seattle, okay? Like sh- this was like 9,000 words at this point. Come on.
2: I was tired. <laughs> We've said many times though that this was uh, shot in the arm following um the dour stretch of uh flannel-clad misanthropes lurching their way through drop-tuned dirges about depression and heroin and I don't know lumber. Uh, That's yours. <laughs> But it has been credited with helping to break ska in the mainstream, opening a lane, uh, a lane for bands like Real Big Fish, Goldfinger, and the Mighty Mighty Boston's. <sighs> Some have debated uh, whether the rise of No Doubt is a cause or symptom of the 90s ska boom. There's a tremendous anecdote about this from Tom Dumont. <laughs> One of his hands was injured when someone asked him for an autograph And he said, quote, when they realized I wasn't in 311, they grabbed the pen back and cut my hand. I can't imagine loving anything enough to attack a musician's hand, much less 311. Anyway, Tragic Kingdom sold 16 million copies, reached number one on the Billboard, 200 over a year after it was released. So something of a slow burn. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh... (laughs) Again, Tom Dumont, for years when they were just struggling, he claimed that he would only get a tattoo if they ever sold millions of records, and then subsequently chickened out. (laughs) Um, Weirdly enough, only one of the singles, Just a Girl, cracked the Hot 100, but the rest were not released as proper singles, so it's kind of a technicality there.
0: I don't know if it's just a ploy to get people to buy the rest of the album, but that was the only song that was released as
2: a single, Just a Girl. That's so wild to me. Uh, Grammy nominations for Best Rock Album, Best New Artist, Song of the Year, Best Pop Performance, Lost All of Them. They did, however, get Best Group Video for Don't Speak at the VMAs. Uh, Their tour, uh, we talked about that tour. Ooh, sometimes on that incredible tour, they opened for Bush. Wow, I wonder if Gwen regrets that, getting to know Gavin Rossdale better. Didn't he cheat? He cheated on her like 17,000 times, right? That I don't know. I mean, you think either of us would know that. From our people yeah, yeah. page six background, but I actually Yeah, it was his uh it was um he cheated on her with a nanny. Oh that's what a loser. Um British rock magazine, Kerrang, was one of the dissenting notes during this world conquering <laughs> uh, I just read ahead. During this world conquering uh era, writing in a tremendous pan. <laughs> Mere words cannot describe how abysmally gutless and sugar-smothered it is. Much like an anteater with a punctured snout, no doubt suck badly. <laughs> One of the best pans I've ever Incredible. read. Incredible. Tony Kanal wanted to make it into a band t-shirt. Uh, Should have. Would have sold very well. That's, that's Primus's thing. They're, all their, their shirts say Primus sucks. <laughs> um, Accurate. Uh... This is cute After Tragic Kingdom was a smash Gwen still lobbied that Eric come back And be involved in their follow up Which took five years to make Return to Saturn came out in 2000 Mm -hmm. Um, She was saying Eric is no doubt And again to illustrate the point In the Rolling Stone profile She pointed to some steamed vegetables On a dinner tray saying These are really good But if I can put a little butter and salt and pepper on that It would be great And that's what Eric is Sure uh, he has a co-write on one track on Return to Saturn, but other than that, doesn't that seem to have been involved? Although Jerry Harrison of the Talking Heads was, producing the track new. Jerry Harrison, probably the third, fourth most famous member of Talking Heads. Jerry Harrison, folks. Friend of the Friend pod, of <laughs> <laughs> Alright, Jordan, bring us home. Tell us about the music videos from Tragic Kingdom. Yes, we can't
0: end this episode without touching on the iconic music videos. As we mentioned, the video for Just a Girl opens in the house that the band shared down the street from Disneyland. Before moving on to the split bathroom scenes, the boys are in dingy CBGBs like squalor and Gwen is in a palatial ladies room. Just a girl get it Mm -hmm. i guess it doesn't really get there uh she purchased the red white and blue tennis top that she wears at a thrift shop just before filming and she added the fake diamonds to it herself which kind of signals her future interest in fashion designs but anyway in the background of the just a girl video you'll notice a very pregnant woman that is gwen's younger sister jill but there's a little bit of drama i guess mild on the no doubt scale of drama (laughs) that stemmed from the just a girl shoot Drummer Adrian Young, he who undresses all the time, apparently, saw an extra on the set who sculpted his hair into devil horns. Very 90s. Adrian liked this look and adopted it for himself. Then he got an irate letter from this horned extra who accused him of being a fraud. I guess you don't... If if a guy voluntarily walks around with devil horns, you probably don't want to piss this guy off. God, the 90s were weird. Yeah, (laughs) and you really don't want him to have your contact information. So, yeah, this is from the Chris Heath Rolling Stone cover story. He said that this letter said, you claim to be part of the dark side when you're just a big fake. You're just a big (laughs) rock star. If
2: you have any integrity left, you would write me back. Counterpoint, (laughs) did he? Did he claim to be part of the dark side? No, I mean, I, this guy
0: is giving me Unabomber vibes. Yeah,
2: that's true.
0: Anyway, so uh, so yeah, Adrian ended up shaving the uh, devil horns off because he didn't want to deal with this guy anymore. He was accusing him of stealing his look. Don't speak. Moving on to don't speak. Yes, don't speak. The drama there was a little more overt. As the band took off, the other guys in the group who weren't Gwen Stefani had to contend with the fact that they had a ridiculously good-looking, energetic, charismatic front woman who, it must be noted, wrote much of her own lyrics, so she was gonna get the lion's share of the attention. I mean, you see it on the cover of the album. It's the Almost Famous thing. Look, I'm just one of the out-of-focus guys in the back. So I don't really know what they are expecting, but it got awkward. There would be magazine photo shoots with the whole band, and then the editor would crop the rest of the group out. Journalists would talk to the whole band and then just print what Gwen says. There was a famous incident with Spin where the band was supposed to be on the cover for their November 1996 issue, but ultimately they just went with Gwen under the headline, Riot Girly, No Doubt Just Wanna Have Fun, as we touched on earlier. And there was an incident in London where Gwen lost her voice and management were grumbling about how no one was going to be happy if Gwen didn't show up to do press. And guitarist Tom Dumont screams, has it got to the point where we mean nothing? Yes or no. If Gwen doesn't speak, do we mean nothing? And when he calmed down, he elaborated to the journalist. I understand intellectually, but I just feel like I'm second class compared to her. I feel I'm just a lesser person. I don't look as good. I'm not as bitchin' as she is in everyone else's <laughs> eyes. The reason I wanted to be a rock star when I was a kid, I thought that it would be a way for people to like me. And now that okay. I got here, I'm not getting that payoff that I was always expecting.
2: it's
0: oh, Very honest. Yeah, well, well, Tony... Canale, he was
2: right. Well, yeah.
0: <laughs> and Tony Canal, who probably has even more complicated feelings given his past relationship with Gwen, had more to say about her getting the star treatment. He said, we want people to know that we're a band. For many years, we talked about what would happen if we ever got offered this sort of stuff. We're going to stick together. We're not going to do it. We're going to say it's the whole band or nothing. But when you're actually put in that situation and you see that your friend has the opportunity maybe the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be on the cover of a magazine, why would you hold someone back from that? So, it was rough for them. But rather than let the spite and bile fester, they took the brave approach of confronting all this drama head-on in their video for Don't Speak. And they kind of acted out the whole photographer singles out Gwen's psychodrama as the plotline for this video by Sophie Mueller. And though the song was ostensibly about Gwen's split with Tony, the video was kind of about Gwen split with the band and the boys all give Gwen dirty looks as you noted earlier and they seem to be kind of upset throughout the whole video and Tony commented we didn't want it to be about a normal breakup so we thought what would be the saddest thing that could happen the band splitting up so that's what the video is about and ironically the night before the video shoot two members Tom and Gwen came close to walking out of the group. The band claims that they were trying to get Gwen to take some time off after her voice kept giving out, but she responded with an angry variation of, I'm going to do whatever I want, and if you don't like it, quit. She claims that she was tired of everyone constantly talking about how it was always her face on the cover of magazines and just didn't want to deal with it anymore and kind of issued an ultimatum that, you know, this this was how it was going to be. Yeah, I'm not even going to speculate on that. Anyway, (laughs) but whatever the case of the don't speak video recording Eve fight, they hashed it all out. And the video proved to be a catharsis that allowed them to make another album 2000's Adult New Wavey Return of Saturn. And let's not forget 2001's Rock Steady the following year, which is honed by the Neptunes, Sly and Robbie, William Orbit, Prince, and Rick O'Kasich. Wow, that's a hell of a lineup. And only one year after the previous album, damn. And then came Gwen's duets with Moby and Eve. I love that Moby song. That Moby song
2: whips. Yeah, that
0: is a great song. The Harajuku Street style, which you mentioned at the top of the episode. The solo albums, but this is all another story. No doubt have released only one album in the last 20 years, 2012's decidedly lackluster Push and Shove, and they've been on an indefinite hiatus since a brief run of festival shows in 2015. And since then, the non-Gwen members of No Doubt have teamed with AFI lead singer Davey Havoc to form the new wave supergroup, their words, Dream Car.
2: <laughs> Got him. Um,
0: then there seems to be a bit of sadness there with the rest of the No Doubt crew who aren't Gwen. In 2020, guitarist Tom Dumont, at quote machine of a man, <clears throat> shared a photo to Instagram in honor of the album Tragic Kingdom's 25th anniversary. And the caption read in part, I can't believe it's been 25 years. In some ways, it feels like yesterday. In some ways, it feels like a distant dream. Sometimes great things fall apart, which is a shame. Yet here we are 25 years later. It is what it is, and I keep trying to make peace with that. I'm especially grateful to all those who helped us along the way, and most of all, to those of you who enjoyed Tragic Kingdom and came out for the shows over the years. I'd love to do one more No Doubt tour, but it feels like that ain't gonna happen. It's bittersweet. In any case, what great memories. Thanks, Oh, That's a
2: bummer. I know. Especially with... Whatever, man. Just her becoming a reality TV star and dating sentient slab of ham. We are in a post-music society. We do music just
0: to get the better brand endorsements and <sighs> uh, reality TV gigs. Oy. Katy
2: Perry. Yeah. Rihanna. Oh, that's so grim. Anyway, I never thought I'd end this feeling sorry for No Doubt guitarist Tom Dumont.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, I told you there would be an arc here. An arc, here. yeah, there yes. it is. Both Gwen and Tony have talked about the heartbreak in Tragic Kingdom, which is simultaneously what made it resonate with so many, but also makes it hard for them to revisit. Gwen later said, quote, the whole purpose for the Tragic Kingdom is the breakup, the heartbreak. There's a lot of feelings. When you say the words Tragic Kingdom, my heart still kind of is broken because those songs were about a really sad time for me. However, I would like to try to end this on a slightly more upbeat note. There's a song included on Gwen's 2004 solo album, Love Angel Music Baby, and it's one that, to me, closes the book on this whole Tragic Kingdom chapter. I'm referring to, of course, the song Cool, which was written as an affectionate tribute to Tony and the friendship they maintained, or at least they maintained as of 2004. The words include, we used to think it was impossible. Now you call me by my new last name. Remember Harvard Boulevard? The dreaming days where the mess was made. Look how all the kids have grown. We've changed, but we're still the same. After all that we've been through,
2: I know we're cool. May we all be so cool with our exes. Well, folks, we're off into our own tragic kingdom. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I have not come around on Ska. Oh, but I have silly. perhaps come around on uh, on the saga of No Doubt, at least as a hero's journey. Told you it would be an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, you know, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself marry Blake Shelton. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> there it is. Thanks for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Hey. I...
0: Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio.
2: The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog.
0: The supervising producer is Mike Johns.
2: The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl.
0: With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.